This is The Guardian. Was, wenn deine Karriere so individuell wäre wie deine Playlist? Was, wenn du Erfahrungen machen könntest, die dir wichtig sind und die dich zu einer Führungskraft werden lassen, die die Welt bewegt? Hier wächst du stetig über dich hinaus und entwickelst Fähigkeiten, mit denen du die größten Herausforderungen unserer Zeit meisterst. Eine Karriere bei EY ist so einzigartig wie du selbst. It's yours to build. Finde auch du deinen Grund, Teil von EY zu werden unter www.de.ey.com. government's so-called mini-budget has now happened, and there was absolutely nothing mini about it. We promised a new approach for a new era. We promised to release the enormous potential of this country. Our growth plan has delivered all those promises and more. The Chancellor, Quasi Kwarteng, set out a vision of deregulated enterprise zones, the lifting of the cap on bankers' bonuses, and slashed taxes. I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. But as the Bank of England raises interest rates to a 14-year high and the UK enters recession, will Kwarteng and Liz Truss's small-state free market ideas lead us further into disaster? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Raphael Baer. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. Right. Let's cut to the chase. Give me your sort of first reaction to what Quasi Kwarteng has just announced. I'm actually angry uh, in a way that I haven't been about politics for, for quite a while because we can get to the detail of it later. But basically, it's like if someone walks into a casino uh, and just puts a huge amount of money just all on red and just spins it and hopes it comes up red. And if it comes up black, then they've lost everything. That's a pretty reckless way to behave. But it's not their money, right? It's our money. It's our country. It's our economy they've done this with. It's such a gamble, the scale of it. Again, we'll talk about that. But actually just seeing them do that, the arrogance of it, when you didn't actually need to do it in this scale, in this way, that I'm actually angry about that. Wow. So Raf's angry. Gabby, what's your sort of emotional state <laughs> right now? It's the emotional state of someone who's just been asked to take a massive jump off a cliff, holding hands with someone wearing a blindfold and the power of self-belief is going to save us from the rocks at the bottom. So obviously very excited, um, <laughs> slightly nervous. Uh, no. And the other thing actually is a bit puzzled because um, on the one hand, I see totally what they're doing. You know, we are absolutely testing the economic theory to its limits here, guys. It's very much strap in and feel the laugh of curve. And, you know, this great theory that if you let rich people make more money, then somehow that will brilliantly um, free us all. Um, but also... I think he's missed a trick that Tory governments normally do, which is they normally don't just give money to the 1%. There's normally a little sweetener in there for the people who actually vote Tory, who are on like 50 grand to 100 grand. It's as if you sort of have taken the volume and turned it up to the to the level that makes people's ears bleed, really. Okay, right. Now, a lot of what was announced just now, as you've just said, uh, had already been trailed in the in the media. But we've now had lots and lots and lots of fine detail. I want to speak first of all to Torsten Bell, the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation and former advisor to Ed Miliband when he was the leader of the Labour Party. So run us through some of the detail here and, in fact, the, the bigger picture. Torsten, in terms of what was announced, I wanted to start with a sort of broad brush point, really, about about the gravity, the seriousness of this political change, which has just become very, very clear. Three years ago, it seems to me, the Conservative Party offered the electorate 
really a, a newly active state and a, a focus on the UK's economic inequalities and imbalances. If you look at their 2019 manifesto, it said millions more invested every week in science, schools, apprenticeships and infrastructure while controlling debt. I mean, that's why I picked that sentence, right? Now, both those pledges, it seems to me, have sort of very quickly withered away this morning in the sense that the trust government's big priority is tax cuts, not state-led investment. And the Tories are suddenly telling us that, that skyrocketing public borrowing is nothing to worry about. It's a big shift. Yeah, look, I think that's totally right, John. It's a really big change that's happened very quickly. But I think everybody today should be surprised by the scale of what's happened. I mean, these are the biggest tax cuts announced since the early 1970s. So in 50 years and they are entirely unfunded. That choice to raise taxes, to cut taxes and raise borrowing is happening at exactly the same time as we are very much not choosing to borrow hundreds of billions of pounds more to pay for higher energy bills and for higher interest rates. So it's the, it's the context that makes the change all the more staggering. Let's talk about specifics. So we're looking at, in total, £45 billion worth of tax cuts. The most glaring one of those tax cuts is the abolition of the top rate of tax, the 45p rate of tax, which, with no little glee, really, Kwasi Kwarteng announced like this. Take the additional rate of income tax. At 45%, it is currently higher than the headline top rate in G7 countries like the US and Italy. And it is even higher than social democracies like Norway. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. This will simplify the tax system and make Britain more competitive. It will reward enterprise and work. It will incentivise growth. It will benefit the whole economy and the whole country. And I think you pointed out on Twitter this morning that if you earn a million pounds a year, you're about to get a tax cut of £55,000, which is more than double average earnings, right? Yeah, I mean, it was already, it was already good to be earning a million pounds. It just got even better. Now, when you look at this, give me your sense. I know you don't feel this yourself, but the sort of rationale, what's going on here? You know, let's just take the bit of what the government said. What's the problem they're trying to address? And the problem they're setting up is the UK economy has been in relative decline versus other similar-ish advanced economies, whether that's Germany, the Netherlands, the United States, for the last 15 years. And that is a big problem. And they're right to say it's a big problem. It's not just a big problem for the rich. It's a big problem for middle and low-income households too, because they've seen their living standards stagnate. Now, they're then saying, we've got an answer to that, and it's tax cuts. Now, I think the problem with that is that the the big picture is that tax isn't the most important determinant of how fast your economy grows. So the United States, lower taxes than us, has grown faster than us in the last 15 years. And Germany, higher taxes than us, has also grown faster than us in the last 15 years. This may sound slightly crude, and your knowledge of economics is more sophisticated than mine. But there is a basic economic point here to do with what, in the distant recesses of my mind, I've been studying economics a long time ago to do with what's called the marginal rate of consumption. I always thought that if you want an economic stimulus, you give money to poor people because they spend it all, right? And if you give money to the sort of people who earn a million pounds a year, they tend to squirrel it away in the Cayman Islands. And for that reason, I'm slightly at a loss to know what the economic benefit is of getting rid of the top rate of tax. Can you enlighten me on that score? Uh, Well, I think that is the distinction between this. Is the purpose to boost growth in the short term by raising demand, which the energy price uh, cap does, but the high rate, Uh, tax cut doesn't do for exactly the reason you're saying that if you generally if you give a really rich person some more money they they will 
stash it in the bank, basically, because they've already consumed everything they can possibly find to consume. So that's not the argument the government's making, although there'll be some of that effect. The growth argument they're making is that in the long term, giving high income people a lower tax rate will mean them changing their behavior. It's not about them spending more. It's about them changing their behavior. And changing their behavior from what to what? From being a bit lazy to trying a bit harder to investing more, employing more people, trying harder to grow the economy because being selfish leads to a bigger economy overall. That's the underpinning. Okay, let's talk about government borrowing. Uh, government borrowing, as I understand it, has gone up sort of 75% at a stroke. It's gone up hugely. Is that right? Well, look, I mean, the big picture is, as I said, the economy and bad things happening in the world, which basically comes down to higher energy prices and higher interest rates means our borrowing was going up anyway quite significantly as i say the unusual thing is combining that with very large discretionary tax cuts at the same time put the two together and borrowing over the next five years will be over 400 billion pounds bigger than we expected it to be back in march and actually if we look what really matters here is the permanent increase in borrowing because obviously temporary increase in borrowing in this case to pay for high energy costs for supporting families and firms through that i think is perfectly reasonable in fact it's a sensible thing to do when hopefully some of these energy cost rises are temporary but the, so the con- controversial bit is permanently increasing borrowing five years out by cutting taxes permanently and that increase in borrowing is the biggest on record for any chancellor in any fiscal event that's what's a really big deal here that is why people like us say on these numbers the public finances aren't sustainable because we're looking for the increase in borrowing at the end of the forecast period so five years out here is £67 billion. You appeared in front of the Treasury Select Committee on Thursday and talked about exactly this question. And you seemed, forgive me for saying so, sort of viscerally angry. You know, this made you very, very cross. This the spectacle of government borrowing in the hope that something sooner or later would come up and therefore rendering the public finances as fragile as it seems they have. Well, I mean, obviously, the big things that should make us angry right now is what's going to be happening to lots of people's living standards if we go through a really difficult winter. And I don't want to put that's the most important thing. How do we get particularly lower middle income households through a difficult year ahead when lots of people will struggle to pay their energy bills? But stepping back from and looking at the economic strategy for Britain, I think the last 15 years and that period of relative decline should make all of us quite angry. Talking about GDP sounds like it's something abstract, but let me just explain. If we had the same level of GDP per capita as countries we think we're similar to, so the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, Canada, and France, countries we think we're similar to, and if we had the same level of lower inequality, the same level of inequality they have, so this is not being like the US and Norway, the extremes, let's just be like what we think of as normal, rich, advanced economies, the average person in Britain would be £8,800 richer. It's not 200 quid. it's £8,800. This toxic combination of low growth, high inequality is, is awful for low and middle income Britain. And that does make me really angry. And then taking gambles with your economic strategy by setting a course for Britain, which is for unsustainable public finances, not just even aiming to see debt on a steady trajectory, but not even trying, that is a gamble not to be taking at the same time as interest rates are rising around the world. This is like this is not a game. It shouldn't be making us viscerally angry in the same way as the huge deprivation that we're going to see this winter. But it should make us, you know, it should make us at least sad. Torsten, thanks for coming to speak to us. Not at all. It's great to join you, John. Thank you. Um, Gabby, Raf. I mean, I share what both of you said at the top in terms of a sort of visceral reaction of feeling appalled and 
quite angry. Um, but I suppose from a sort of dispassionate perspective, the thing that strikes me the most is this sense of this huge political handbrake turn relative to what the last two Tory governments under Theresa May and Boris Johnson have told us. At any rate, after the Brexit referendum, Theresa May tried at least to lead the Conservatives' approach to the economy and society in a sort of more statist, faintly social democratic direction. Boris Johnson carried that on, or said he was carrying it on, though he didn't really believe in anything beyond his own ambition. I mean, looking back, even in the midst of austerity, David Cameron and George Osborne tried to style themselves as sort of Tories with a social conscience, right? It wasn't brazen, we're really here to help the rich in the, in the vain hope that some of the money then cascades down to you poorer folks. And by comparison with all of those prime ministers and, and their chancellors, so in other words, the last 12 years of Tory history, we're now dealing with something different, unabashed, brazen economic liberalism. Really, let's sprint back to Thatcher. And it, it struck me watching Quasi Kwarteng that we're now within spitting distance of ideas like a single flat rate of taxation. You know, that sort of begins to hove into view. It's big stuff. Ideology is back. Let's have a listen to Quasi Kwarteng giving us a bit of that uh, very strong, pungent flavour. For too long in this country, we've indulged in a fight over redistribution. Yeah. Now we need to focus on growth, not just how we tax and spend. We won't apologise for managing the economy in a way that increases prosperity and living standards. Our entire focus is on making Britain more globally competitive, not losing out to our competitors abroad. Gabby, that's right, isn't it? I mean, this is the most sort of ideological style of government that we've seen in years. It is. And they very much wanted you to think about it that way. I mean, Kwateng said very deliberately, you know, this is the beginning of a new era, sort of howls of outrage from the Labour benches, obviously, given it's the same party in power. But they do want you to think something has changed. No, you were fed up with that Boris Johnson. Here's something different. You know, there's a there's a partly aim there to sort of neutralise a Labour argument, which would be this, this lot have been in power for ages. You know, it's time for something different. It is, as you say, you know, it is the return of big ideological battles. But also, I think... The return of a sort of um, a very different kind of of politics that's that's very unemotional, very clinical, very dispassionate. Very, we don't care what you think about this. We don't care how it looks. That on the one hand we're uncapping bankers' bonuses, and on the other hand we're saying to universal credit claimants you'll be sanctioned if you don't go to more work interviews. There's really no concern for optics or any of that stuff. All that sort of language of poli- touchy feely language of politics that we've got used to. They don't care what it looks like. See, what I felt, Raf, as much as anything watching it, was how do you, what's the sell here to voters? Particularly given the fact that the Conservative um, Electoral Coalition, we now know, has a really substantial part now, these former Labour so-called red wall seats, which, are sort of, which have pushed the Tories into sounding these, these more sort of collectivist statists, you know, we're concerned about inequality and regional imbalances and all that. I mean, that's been the the sort of um, the sense that both Theresa May and Boris Johnson have given out. And all that just seems to have suddenly died. I mean, it was withering away, arguably, but it has gone now. And I just wonder, what's the, what's the sell here, electorally? You know, it's interesting, going back to the repudiation of, of sort of Cameron-era Tories, I mean, one of the reasons Cameron said, you know, the, the, per- the point is to share the proceeds of growth, and one of the reasons Theresa May... Uh, talks about burning injustices is because they recognised that, you know, whether or not the economic theory said that ought to happen, the politics of it were were sort of moving ahead of the economics and people were just angry. And that wasn't, you know, notoriously the the interpretation of the Brexit vote in a lot of cases. So, yes, your question is, well, there's there's two elements to it, isn't it? One is 
all those people who sort of loaned their votes to Boris Johnson to get Brexit done in 2019 uh, and had to overcome all sorts of, sort of cultural and inherited taboos about never voting for the evil Tories. How much of this is going to reanimate, basically remind people why they hate the Conservative Party? And you've got to think quite a lot. So then the question is, well, how's this supposed to work? And my understanding is that the calculation, apart from the economic theory, is that conviction and belief and determination, which is what trust thinks she represents, trump uh, compassion, but without a plan. And that enough people think Keir Starmer is this kind of slippery, whiny, complains by on the sidelines, doesn't really have a plan. Uh, trust can inherit that sense that people have. I don't necessarily like that, Mrs. Thatcher, but she knows what she's about. So it's a kind of a cartoon fandom of an idea of what Thatcher had that actually she acquired sort of in retrospect rather than what she was in the mid 80s. Yeah, but but also what it's lacking is what Thatcherism had, which is that that conviction was manifested in things that were very, very relevant to people and, and were a sort of direct presence in their lives. So Mrs Thatcher's conviction was manifested in the fact that people could buy their council houses, right? Mrs Thatcher's conviction was manifested in the fact that she tamed the trade unions, right? And so so people felt they, they were living in a different sort of day-to-day -day reality. If your conviction is largely in the in the service of letting rich people keep more of their money, then whatever you trigger is not going to be felt and experienced by your voters. It remains in the realm of the abstract, doesn't it? This is a big problem, I think, for them in that you essentially the UK is, by European standards, already a low tax, low regulation economy. Right. So you, as you say, you can't do Thatcherism again because it's been done once before. Um, in terms of what people will get in their pockets, you know, yes, their energy bills are going to go up by not as much as they would have done. Uh, they'll also get a lot of sort of Tory middle income voters are going to get the benefit of the national insurance rise being cancelled. But that money, remember, was supposed to go to the NHS. Now you can borrow the money for the NHS, but ultimately, you know, if the health service can't cope with a, a chilly, a mild autumn, it's going to really struggle in a, in a tough winter. So, no, I, I, I'm not, I'd love to find a way of disagreeing with you, John, but I think they have ultimately uh, put a lot of on a sort of a theoretical idea of how politics is supposed to work uh, without necessarily having the insight that some of their predecessors had about how politics actually does work. But having said that, Gabby... I'm always very wary, and I've just been guilty of it myself, of people on broadly our side of things who just say, well, this is going to be disastrous. The Tories are committing electoral suicide. Of course, this will lead to a Labour landslide. And it very rarely does. I mean, that only happens once every 20 years or so, right? So in that sense, I'm constantly looking out for something I might have missed here, right? There may be a cleverness at work here that I'm not seeing. There may be. It may be that Liz Truss is a misunderstood <laughs> genius and we're all wrong. And, you know, that um, we're about to rewrite economic theory right in front of us, which is great. I'm very much looking forward to that because it means we're not driving at a brick wall at 80 miles an hour. And I'm, I'm all for that. I think probably what we have to do is disentangle the idea that a Tory government could mess it all up from the idea that that means there's a Labour government. Perfectly possible. Um, to mess things up and for Labour to somehow mess things up even more cataclysmically. I think it's kind of hard to see the sort of sheer scale of this gamble this time. Yeah. OK, Raf, quickly. Yeah, well, look, I mean, growth will come back eventually, almost certainly, nearly always. Well, it always has done before. So at some stage it will come back, depending on when. But I do think also there is a kind of a very raw and crude political calculation that's worth flagging up here, which is like, what are the forces that actually 
have in the past really determined whether or not a Tory prime minister in particular survives. It's basically whether the right wing faction of the Conservative Party turns against them. It's whether Fleet Street, the Tory press, the Telegraph, the Mail, the Sun, the Express turn against them and it's whether the donors turn around and go actually you're screwing this up you're not getting any more of my money now actually those three things are quite locked in by this budget <laughs> gabby you're shaking your I head i don't buy that I no, don't gabby buy is that shaking her head frantically here. that's not how elections work i mean of course it helps if your donors are on side and happy and of course it helps if the tory press is on side and happy but people have this idea that you know the tory press is entirely driven by what three millionaire proprietors billionaire proprietors at the top think and want they have to respond to their readers if their readers are absolutely blooming and furious and can't afford to buy their newspapers anymore. And if the government has created an economic climate in which you can't sell newspapers, that's when they get crossed very quickly. And let's talk about precisely that. Let's talk about real conditions um, out there in the real world. Friday, so-called fiscal event and announcements. Follow the news on Thursday, as we all know, that the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates from 1.75% to 2.25%. Um, there are strong signals that even more interest rates or a- another interest rate rise will be on the way round about November. Um, interest rates are higher um, than they've been for 14 years. Um, and we all know the precarious state of a lot of people's finances. This is a world in which if the interest rate ticks up by half a percentage point even, because people's budgets are so tight in the context of, of rampant inflation and so on, people really feel that and it can tip a lot of people into crisis. Now, the other factor in all this is if you're looking at, which you are, a government hugely increasing borrowing, that, that creates pressure on interest rates as well, right? We need to think about that, don't we? I mean, that's, all that stuff is going to be very, very relevant over the next sort of, what, six months, a year, two years. Gabby? It's a little bit more longer term because, you know, at the moment, you know, the majority of people are on fixed rate mortgages at the moment. So if you're on a fix, you're not you're not feeling it if the interest rate goes up. But, you know, over the next year, a large proportion of people's fix will be due to end. And that's when you you get the pain. So it'll be slightly more um, longer term, maybe than the sort of immediate tax relief rises. But you're right. They're, they're pushing in different directions. It's no good thinking, oh, well, I've got this money here from the national insurance rise not happening, but I'm actually spending more than that. On my on my mortgage now, so that's a big thing. The other thing um, to bear in mind that that's also pushing in the opposite direction is is what happens to public services. We haven't talked about it very much because Kwasi Kwarteng didn't talk about it at all. But you know, somewhere along the line, um, it looks to me as if um, big cuts in public uh, public spending are coming. But God, and there but there is nothing left to cut. I mean, that's that's the other point about any prospect of renewed cuts to public services. We all know you talk to anybody in education or health or particularly councils, local services, right? There is nothing left to cut. That does not mean they're not going to cut it. Raf, cheer me up. Why don't well, you? Well, uh, <laughs> well, this isn't going to cheer you up, but I mean, Gabby flagged it earlier. I think very revealing uh, politically on this is the bit in the, you know, we need to basically get more people out of inactivity into work. And the way we're going to do that to take some of the heat out of the labour market uh, is by threatening to cut their benefits. Again, right, we've been through this before, but there, again, there's no more capacity there. Now we're at the, they're really very much at people who aren't working because they can't work. I mean, that is, you know, there, there might be a few people who probably could go and, and pick some berries in East Anglia, uh, jobs that used to be done by by Romanian migrant workers who aren't coming anymore. But a lot of the, there's also a lot of people with long COVID who really can't go back to work, right? So, you know, that's pretty desperate stuff. There's one other question, fundamental question I want to ask in this section, which is about a basic question about democratic legitimacy, which I haven't heard that much in all the commentary around Kwasi Kwarteng's statement and so on. But you have to ask that question. Who voted for this? 
This is not the Conservative manifesto of 2019. I mean, that really was framed in terms of an economically uh, interventionist state, the idea that the government would be paying a lot of attention to regional imbalances and inequalities. It also made made very pointed reference to, to keeping debt down, right? That was another part of the Conservative 2019 manifesto, let alone things like fracking. You know, I mean, this, this manifesto is being torn to pieces in front of our eyes. And we have to ask the question here. This is this is not good for the for the sort of health of a democracy when uh, when a government behaves like this. There is this kind of the, the feeling that the, the Conservative Party, after a certain period in time, gets at least the mentality of a one party state. I mean, it does. It's a slightly grotesque analogy, but it reminds him a little bit of the kind of late Brezhnev era Soviet Union, where the just the presumption is if things aren't if the economy isn't quite working, you just apply the same ideology, just even harder, more, faster, because that surely at some stage eventually the, the reality will conform to the model if you just yeah, like, make yeah. the model work hard, sweat the model. You have a really interesting theory, Raf, don't you, about Brexit? Because it was Brexit that uncoupled. British politics and conservative politics specifically from reality. That was the point at which conservative politicians said, we don't have to bother with the real world now. We are off in the realm of our own sort of ideological fantasies and prejudices. And what you get then is an approach like this. What you're getting here is the very pure idea of Brexit that they couldn't have sold in 2016. This was a 20% Brexit, not a 52% Levo Brexit. They got all the rest of it by banging on about immigration and appealing to the Red Wall with a totally different perspective. They won that. And now they're getting the Jacob Rees-Mogg Brexit, which was never a majority proposition. And you never would have won a referendum if you'd fought on those terms. That is called Singapore on Thames, Gabby. I mean, that's the essential vision. I, yeah, I agree. It's it's We are moving from a Red Wall Brexit, which was about left behind towns and it was about all of that kind of stuff you know and it did have a sort of social dimension and a recognition of people who hadn't been hurt we're moving from that to red trouser brexit which is what you know sorry golf club boars want what brexit to mean generally people who are not traders. in the labor market anymore which is basically unleash your inner tiger low tax low regulation we're all gonna um sweat ourselves to death kind of um, Brexit. I do think we're moving in that direction. The one thing I did wonder, listening to that um, not budget, um, particularly when he said he was bringing. Audible, hör die Welt vernetzter. Wir reden über die Stories hinter den größten Hypes, über virales Memes und Cat Content. Hör Quelle Internet mit Sophie Passmann, ein Audible Original Podcast, nur bei Audible. Jetzt kostenlos testen forward uh, cut in the basic rate of income tax to 2023 is I wonder if we're not going to make it to 2024 for an election. I wonder if the, the best, would there be a window in kind of spring next year where you say, where, you know, you've, you've pulled things up off the floor a bit, you know, enough to say, look, our plan is working without, you know, yet hitting the crash that you're going to hit when the sugar rush wears off. Is there a point there where you cut the basic rate of income tax, run for the polls thinking this is as good as it's going to get you know i don't know that she can sustain this without a democratic mandate till 2024 god help us all right let's pause there for a moment um, next we're going to be talking about the state of the public finances remember them how bad that how bad a state they uh, are probably in and how much worse things could get Welcome back. We spoke a bit about this in our episode on Thursday ahead of the so-called mini-budget, which turned out not to be mini at all. But it is worth talking about the hugest handbrake turn of all, really, which is about government borrowing. 
I mean, God knows, we've just been through 12 years of political history where we were told that the worst thing that could happen was excessive government borrowing. And people's libraries were shut and uh, their roads sprouted potholes and their parks filled up with litter. And the NHS and schools ended up in a dire mess. And that was all because we were told that the deficit was all and we could not possibly cope with increased government borrowing. And now along comes a new Conservative Prime Minister and Chancellor, and as far as I understand it, government borrowing is set to increase by about 75%. (laughs) And they're telling us that this is nothing to worry about. This is astonishing, Raph. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier about the sort of the repudiation of the Tory legacy, you know, this is the second half of it, isn't it? So the first bit is the the narrative about actually there is some distributional interest. We care about people, um, uh, you know, compassionate conservatism. But the other part is, you know, you remember that George Osborne invented uh, the Office for Budget Responsibility in, in 2010. Precisely the argument, the political argument there was we need an independent institution that will prevent a government from ever running fiscal policy the way that Kwasi Kwarteng has today started running fiscal policy. Just to take that symbolism home, you know, uh, the other thing that's happened is that there are no OBR forecasts around this mini budget. There we are. Well, exactly. This is the point. It, and, and, and I'm sure they would scrap it if they could. But it's also the tragedy of the economics of it, that money has been free, more or less. You had, in real terms, sort of negative interest rates for, for some of the time during QE, when you could have borrowed so much and invested it. And there are so many things you could have built in that time. And now, now the interest rates are going up. And, you know, it, 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 yeah, it beggars belief. It is amazing, isn't it, Gabby? This idea that we just sort of wipe all our memories of the last 12 years of history and, and deficit fixation and everything that it led to. And we're being told that none of that really counted for very much. And worse still, as Raf has just said, at a point at which government borrowing is actually a lot more difficult economically than it was when we were being told it was unconscionable. It's very exciting time to be a Corbynista, I think, because because when you said all of this, you know, it was the magic money tree and conjuring up money that doesn't exist and um, you were going to bankrupt the country. Uh, but now, apparently, it's all OK. I think that is unsettling for a surprising number of Conservative MPs. And I think it's unsettling for a certain kind of Tory voter. And I think it's unsettling. It's visibly unsettling for the Treasury Select Committee. It's going to be unsettling for the Bank of England. It looks pretty unsettling for the city, judging by the initial reaction to this budget and the fact the pound is now at a whatever is 38 year low. So stop there, stop there, because you've just segued very gracefully in what what I want to talk about next, which is that uh, we all know that before this mini budget was announced, um, the pound was already at historic lows, um, certainly against the dollar, I think, against the euro too. Uh, there's a lot of talk around about a sterling crisis, and we all know what, what that would mean for people's everyday lives. Now, I think I'm right in saying that everybody on today's podcast is probably old enough to remember Black Wednesday in 1992, the last big sterling crisis we suffered. Let's hear a bit of the news archive describing uh, the predicament of Norman Lamont, the Chancellor at the time. But first, Norman Lamont has suspended Britain's membership of the European exchange rate mechanism and the pound is suspended in the European monetary system. Interest rates are immediately cut back from 15% to 12% and the signs now are that devaluation of the pound will almost certainly follow. Because that's, uh, that's the other thing that sort of undermines this very sort of bumptious, here we go, go for growth sort of rhetoric around, around uh, this money budget is that the prospect of an awful, awful calamity feels like it's getting more and more real by the day, doesn't it, Gabby? 
if you want to be really uh, doom ridden about it, and I'm really sorry if you're listening to this trying to drop off to sleep um, and, and waiting for a you know note of reassurance, but um, the big the sort of ultimate nuclear fear is that we end up in a situation where we're going cap in hand to the IMF for a bailout because you know the growth hasn't happened and we're just massively overborrowed and we have a sovereign debt crisis. There's a macro fear, isn't there, that actually Britain in the 21st century, the story of Britain in the 21st century, basically be like Argentina in the 20th century. It started out looking like it was going to be one of the big, powerful, developing you know, capitalist countries and they just mismanaged everything and it be- and it became a story of you know cycle of crises and, and failing currencies on the currency point just one thing i would add you know in theory a weaker sterling actually at least boosts your exports right i mean there are supposed to be advantages to a devaluation um the the, the twin problem we have in that respect is first of we all we can't export we have a little tiny well, yeah. export so, problem so unfortunately that, since 2016 we, we appear for reasons that no one can understand by some total mystery we're finding it much harder to export into our wealthiest biggest nearest trading partner the single market of the european union not i can't quite work out what's happened there but and the other one is that energy uh, gas uh all that stuff oil is is priced in dollars <laughs> so you just like you really don't want to have a weaker pound when you're having to buy that stuff so there, that is a yeah it's a problem let's talk about the labor party's response to this i mean clearly this sort of puts on the table a clash of ideologies potentially you know if if the labor party wanted to it could go into the absolute sort of philosophical fundamentals of politics but that isn't keir starmer's style right if this is an act of class war, he's not the sort of Labour leader who's going to reciprocate. And I wonder, particularly given that the Labour Party conference is happening next week in Liverpool, what the sort of broad outline of his and the Labour front bench's response to this is going to be. Gabby, do you think, do you think we'll get a, at least a bit of um, fire in the belly, many not the few type stuff from Keir Starmer next week? Sort of fire and belly are not, are not words kind of I massively associate <laughs> That's why I asked you the question. with a Starmer speech. But I mean, I think... <laughs> Look, I think he's got to hit some kind of emotional register that he hasn't hit before. Um, but I think these are quite straightforward. I mean, in some ways, by moving right to the fringe, shall we say, of the argument on, on tax and spend, as, as, you know, the Conservative Party have done, they have an half left a lot of room for Labour manoeuvre. And yes, you do want to hear some kind of, you know, impassioned sort of defence of, of, closing the inequality gap and that kind of thing. But you, and you'd want to hear, you know, you know, I'm sure we will get a lot of emotive attacks on what Labour's, what the Tories are doing to the poor and all the rest of it. But I think the straightforward question for Labour at the next election is just, do you feel better off? You know, they don't have to, you know, go into a huge class war type argument or a theoretical argument about why this isn't all wrong. You're just saying to people, look, the Labour Party would offer you probably a big announcement on childcare, probably a big thing on the NHS, probably a big, you know, the big guarantee on education, but all sorts of things. And, 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 you know, against that, you've got what? The government told you you'd all be rich by now. And do you feel it? Right. Raph, in conclusion, there won't be any poll bounce out of this, will there? I mean, the, 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 the Tories, it's just sort of heads down and let's hope this works. Uh, yeah, there's no, and I think if you were going to get a sort of a honeymoon period just from the sheer fact of having a different prime minister, uh, that moment has has passed already. So, uh, look, I mean, you always have to hedge some of these positions on the understanding that that it might work, something might happen, we might have got this wrong. But at the, for the, my my judgment of this at the moment is that the story of the trust government is going to now be defensive and bitty and angry and probably being pushed into some quite nasty culture war stuff that they don't actually intuitively really want to do, but feel they have to do because they have to shore up votes in places that they're shedding them fast. And let's not forget there are big hitters on the Tory backbenches who are sort of, you know, waiting for their chance who will not feel good about this at all. You know, the internal politics of the Tory party remains very 
very, very, very sort of febrile and factionally divided and all that. And that will rear its head inevitably quite soon. I also think some of the announcements that are coming over the next few weeks, I mean, Kwarteng just sort of skated over this, but he said there's a big announcement coming on planning. You know, how's that going to go? What does that mean for the various sort of, you know, nimby-ish Tory seats that don't like any kind of new building? You know, there are going to be new announcements about childcare. There are going to be new announcements about agriculture. There are going to be new announcements about all sorts of things. I think if Trust pursues this kind of, I don't care what you think, I'm just going for growth, could all be quite significant irritants. I speak to you not far from Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat in Somerset, where if the government's plans work out, the hills, the Mendip Hills, will soon be full of fracking prospectors, which I I can tell you from the last time that threatened to happen, did not play well with Tory voters. Anyway, a lot to talk about in the ensuing weeks. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Gabby Hinsliff and Raphael Baer. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK. You've probably heard the adverts for our new six-part podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It's great. And all six parts will be available to listen to from Friday the 23rd of September. Do subscribe now to Can I Tell You a Secret or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Was, wenn deine Karriere so individuell wäre wie deine Playlist? Was, wenn du Erfahrungen machen könntest, die dir wichtig sind und die dich zu einer Führungskraft werden lassen, die die Welt bewegt? Hier wächst du stetig über dich hinaus und entwickelst Fähigkeiten, mit denen du die größten Herausforderungen unserer Zeit meisterst. Eine Karriere bei EY ist so einzigartig wie du selbst. It's yours to build. Finde auch du deinen Grund, Teil von EY zu werden unter www.de.ey.com.